Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. This evening, we're joined by quite the special guest, actor, director, writer, editor, founder of Glass Eye Picks, and all-around fine fellow, Mr. Larry Fessenden. Larry, how the hell are you? Hey, guys. This is fantastic to be on the on the inner tubes with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you, man. So, Larry, take us back in time. How would you say your creativity was cultivated as a child? You know, what films, books were you consuming in those days to keep your juices flowing? Well, when I was a little kid, for one thing, I had two older brothers and they always controlled what was on the television. So I was sort of a silent observer. But when I had any say in the matter, I loved old black and white scary movies like Frankenstein and Dracula and then some of the... Uh, weirder movies like the faceless man and the curse of the crab people and all this stuff that just showed up on television and then i found my way to the uh, magazine store and um, i got famous monsters of filmland and creepy and eerie and some of the comic books by marvel they did horror magazines as well like werewolf by night and frankenstein and dracula comics so i was a regular reader of all of that and uh, just always loved the dark side. You know, I was a sensitive kid and I just felt the world was very potent and scary, but I also loved creatures and monsters. And uh, I loved great white sharks when I was little, you know, it was before Jaws and mm -hmm. just one of those weird things when you're kind of in the zeitgeist years before. I loved the Titanic going down, you know, disasters <laughs> of human hubris. And so that was my childhood. I was always drawing pictures. That was really my main art form was, uh, was probably drawing and making sculptures and models and that kind of stuff. So you're a monster movie, man. What are some of your uh, favorite effects throughout history? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Well, of course, there's the, you know, really the classic iconic monsters. I grew up with a picture of Wolfman, picture of Frankenstein on my wall, Dracula, and some of the movie posters from the same era. And then I, I love makeup. And obviously, years later, I was enamored with movies like The Thing by Carpenter and, and some of those efforts. And the modern werewolf movie struck me when I was a teenager and the whole idea of the extending mouth. I just always loved I love the creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, none of this is particularly unique. I guess it's a lot of kids my age grew up on this whole wonderful period. I mean, there'll never be anything like it when, you know, Universal sold all its movies to television and then they started making the monster models by Aurora. And then there was a lot of love for the artwork by Basil Gogos and, you know, all of this beautiful, beautiful imagery. And, you know, I, I was just a child of commercialism, really. <laughs> they were selling me cereal with Dracula on the cover. But all? It all worked <laughs> for me, man. It all worked for me. Do you recall when you gave writing a first serious go? Well, it's funny you say that. I, <laughs> even in third grade, I would write these short stories. And I don't know what 
happened in the stories, but they would always end. And I swear it's true. He walked into his parents' room and there was nothing but blood, bones, and guts. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and I, my parents were wonderful. They were supportive in some way. They were a little weirded out by me, but they were very nice. So I wasn't wishing them ill. Maybe I was afraid they would disappear on me, but that was... <laughs> so I was a writer as a kid. I wrote short stories and then I would make, you know, like books about dinosaurs and I would sew these cardboard covers together and just all very artsy, crafty kind of stuff uh, with magic markers and colored pencils, you know. I think it's safe to say that most kids, including myself, go through a dinosaurs and cowboys phase. Cause You've I got to. You've yeah. got to. Yeah. Why don't you say it? I got pictures of me as a little kid with the classic, the cowboy hat. I yep. had pistols. <laughs> I mean, Angelique is going, you guys, what the heck? <laughs> no, no, I went through a whole dinosaur thing. I, I, I skipped the cowboy thing and went into the G.I. Joes. Oh, well, don't get me started with G.I. Joes. Then. So, yeah, but the dinosaurs, I'm, I'm right there with you guys. <laughs> this day, my wife and I will walk by a little, you know, a little cluster of stones and maybe some moss. And she'll say, oh, that's a pretty good set for a G.I. Joe movie because, you know, <laughs> We both like thinking miniatures. She's an animator. So wow. always about sort of seeing the world in miniature. And of course, there's all kinds of things you can see and go, oh, well, if a G.I. Joe was there, it would look like a big stone wall. Anyway, yeah, so I made in 1976, I, I love Jaws so much. I made a boat seven feet long to scale with the G.I. Joes. And I shaved the guys to look like Quentin Brody and Hooper and I even made a shark, but I made it out of paper mache, so that was a mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Note to self, don't make the shark out of paper mache. <laughs> it's funny, Jaws doesn't really get mentioned that much in horror circles, but Robert Shaw's speech in that cabin house is one of the most horrifying moments in cinema history to me as a kid. Imagine from the dorsal to the tail. Well, we didn't know, because our bomb mission been so secret. No distractions being sent. Well, you know, I always say that Jaws was the one time I felt aligned with the popular culture because it was my favorite movie. It was an actual monster movie. And for one brief summer, everybody agreed that that was the coolest thing. And as I had told you, I, I was obsessed with great white sharks. I just, I wrote a paper on them when I was a little kid. And there was a movie called Blue Water, White Death, which was a, a documentary. And, you know, you actually saw real great whites and it blew my mind. And that was a couple of years before the book came out and then the movie. And I just loved the film. I loved Robert Shaw. I loved all the actors, Roy Scheider. And, um, and yeah, so I built this little miniature and I tried to make it out of in animation. <laughs> <laughs> absurd effort but you know i wrote the script and in mind the shark wins <laughs> <laughs> but uh then the fucking next year star wars came out and i understand the affection for star wars but to me it, it, it didn't have the the grit and the fear so i felt alienated yet again and had <laughs> remained alienated ever since <laughs> <laughs> i think the alienation has served you well well, yeah, it's all right. I find my niche. <laughs> <laughs> Can you recall the first screenplay that you finished? Well, that's a screenplay is hard to say, but I did write like comic strips and I would draw them. And there was one about a makeup artist who gets burned horribly in the, in the circus. And then he, uh, he puts on the makeup 
to, to go out in the world. And he, I think he became a bit of a serial killer or something. But, you know, a lot of my stuff, my thinking was the monster as the outsider, you know, from the Quasimodo school of thinking. And maybe there was some self-pity uh, thrown in, you know, as I became a teenager. And, you know, I was popular enough, but I still always felt like an outsider. And I related to the monsters and the plight of being and you know in a weird way i grew up sort of a fairly straight-laced environment where being an artist in itself was weird and having those impulses so uh for various reasons i felt awkward as really every kid does that's why i think we have so many our fans they understand the loneliness of life and they love that they're these great stories that speak about it you know well said. You've operated Glass Eye Pick since 85. So what was ultimately the catalyst for starting the company to blaze your own path? Well, actually, ironically, it was not a horror movie. It was a film called Experience Movers, which was this epic, preposterous, epic caper movie. I think the final movie was two and a half hours long. I shot it on video. I, I discovered that video was a way to make movies for almost nothing. I mean, the cost of an hour-long cassette tape was... $20 maybe. So I became obsessed with this play that my friend had written. And, you know, I got a bunch of guys together and I was one of three crew members. In other words, it was me and two other people. And, you know, you'd have to carry these huge lights around. It was a beautiful experience. And I had a cast of maybe 15 people and I'd have to wrangle them. And they were all very eccentric. Some of them, they need a lot of babysitting. And But it was a passion project. And we filmed in the Lower East Side of New York City in these bars. And we went in cars and broke through walls. And we almost got arrested a couple times. It was this crazy, sprawling film. And that's where I learned a lot of my principles. But uh, when it was over, when I finished editing, I was like, what, what company name should I give this production? I've been working on it for two years. And I came up with glass eye picks because my friend had given me a, a glass eye ring and said, this is because you have vision. So it was in that moment that I, I came up with the, the name and picks is from a Cagney movie uh, where he talks in the lingo of variety, which is the, you know, the newspaper for showbiz people. And they used to have these great headlines, sticks, nicks, hicks, picks. They would have a, sort of their own coded language. It was very endearing to me. And so that's where I came up with the name. And then I made my film Habit eventually. And that sort of was a little more of an official film. And then I started mentoring filmmakers and sort of really established the company as we all think of it now as sort of a community of people. You mentor a lot of filmmakers since you just mentioned that. What is it like for you when someone, say like Ty West, who makes such an awesome movie like House of the Devil and regards you as someone who inspires him, like what is that like for you to see someone that you've mentored make something so well received? Well, it's really wonderful. These guys that I knew, you know, Ty was my intern. And even that's a nice story is that uh, my friend Kelly Riker, who's uh, a very well-regarded indie filmmaker. I helped her make a film called River of Grass in about 93. And I had just made a film called No Telling and it was kind of a, didn't do that well and it was almost humiliating for me. So I kind of felt sad for myself as usual. And uh, then Kelly needed help with her movie. So what I, I found it very redemptive to help her because I have a lot of problems integrating with showbiz 
but I have no problem making movies. I know how I like to make movies. I love thinking about movies and talking about them. And so I'm very good at talking with people and finding out what they're looking for in, in a film and helping them find their vision. So I helped Kelly and then she became a teacher over time. And she had a class where she said, has anyone ever heard of this guy, Larry, who made a movie called Habit? And one guy raised his hand, it was Ty West. So he had found the VHS video at like a, a video rental house where he grew up. So Ty became my intern and I said, I really liked your short films. If you ever write a feature kid, you come talk to me. Well, he did days after he finished college. And so we made this movie called The Roost. And that's a great little uh, scary bat movie. We, we made CGI bats. We all worked on it together. And he brought in his friend Graham Resnick, who's a great filmmaker and collaborator. And uh, that's kind of where the community started to build. And Ty went off and he directed Cabin Fever 2. And he was so miserable, he came back and said, can I make another movie with Glass Eye? And we made a film called Trigger Man. And then I got some pals to finance a script. And Ty laid out a number of storylines. And one of them was House of the Devil. Funnily enough, one of them was pretty much the innkeeper. It had to do with kids ordering pizza who were dealing with ghosts. So it's funny to realize that in a way, Ty pitched both those movies to me uh, at once. But my comrades chose House of the Devil. And that's the movie we made and started an association with Peter Polk, who's also a producer with Glass Eye. And, and, and that was our biggest movie to date. And we started a relationship with this company, MPI. And I think I made seven movies with them. I mean, Ty West, I love his whole oven. I mean, The Innkeepers and House of the Devil are kind of neck and neck for my, my favorites of his. And, and you're, you being involved with both of those, they're both amazing. I, I, I think I prefer The Innkeepers almost oh, nice. to House of the Devil because it's so just, it's insidious. It gets in your head and yeah. it creeps and just, it just, it, that one speaks to me and, and just, you know, I love creepy hotels. So, <laughs> well, I think you must know if you've encountered anything online about these movies is that when they made the house of the devil, we stayed at that hotel. And so ties at the Yankee peddler in Connecticut. And we would actually drive 40 minutes to the location, the house of the devil location. And Ty realized that wouldn't it be smart to just make a movie in the very hotel? And it was considered haunted, so there was some real... I feel like the thing that we're not saying, but what's so sweet about The Innkeepers is really the relationship. It's mm -hmm. uh, profoundly appealing and naturalistic and, and insightful. And they're both so great, Sarah and Pat, at this sort of unrequited love. And there's that one scene, which has nothing to do with horror, really, where... You can tell he just wants to say, I really dig you. And, and just she's too ditzy to kind of. She's oblivious. It. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's where Ty is really great. And I think he does the same in House of the Devil. Really, it's the beginning with the relationship between the two girls when, um, oh, my goodness, whatever. But, you know, what I'm saying, one of them is saying, don't do this gig. It's too weird. And then obviously she gets spoiler alert. Shot. <laughs> uh, but I think what's cool about Ty is actually his observation of, of human behavior. And then, of course, we always joke now because it's almost it'll be on his tomb, tombstone, slow burn. But that's something that all the Glass Eye movies embrace, which is to start in a very naturalistic place. So mm -hmm. 
the horror creeps in. It's like you said about the innkeepers. It gets under your skin because you just this. And that's really how horror would arrive in your life. I mean, even think of COVID, which we've all now suffered through a horror movie. And, you know, at first there's like, oh, there's this thing in China and you're kind of paying attention. And then it's like, you know, we're actually not going to let anybody from China in. You know, that's how a horror movie really unfolds. Same with Night of the Living Dead, one of my favorite movies. It's sort of like, oh, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And it's all kind of funny and weird, but it just slowly becomes more and more terrifying. Yeah, it's all funny until they grab you and, and chomp into your shoulder. It's all funny until you lose an eye. (laughs) <laughs> larry on the subject of covid uh since things are starting to kind of pick back up again uh what are some of the differences on set that you've noticed coming back to work well i've only done very little films which was a great pleasure to actually i work pretty much straight through the pandemic not often but enough to sort of track and uh it's pretty weird because you'll wear a mask until action and then you take it off uh, and all the crew is is masked and there's protocols i've never done a long-term covid movie where you're actually on you know i don't even know about craft service and stuff i can tell you that we're planning to shoot something ourselves and anxiety about the testing and the cost of the testing and how to keep everyone safe one thing that's we're lucky is that we're asking people to be vaccinated. So kind of a bit of a transition period to figure out how that's going to go down. But on a little film, it's possible. Obviously, you're making Jurassic Park somewhere, and that's a big deal. Or Tom Cruise, his little blow up. I thought that was quite charming myself because he's right, you know. There's a lot of people dependent on these jobs. These are good paying jobs and they require really smart, talented people. And when you're making a Tom Cruise movie and there's these incredible stunts, everyone's got to be on the top of their game. So I I didn't resent his little um, tirade. Obviously, it's very Mm -hmm. self-important, but I think when you're at his level, you do feel that responsible for a lot of people's welfare and so on. We'll just call it passion. And there's passion. You know, I, I actually deliberately bring up Tom Cruise because he's easy to say he's just a Hollywood schmuck but actually the dude is hardworking and his behind the scenes stuff you know learning to fly helicopters and jump out of buildings and hold his breath for seven minutes I'm sorry that's pretty top of the line activities passion (laughs) (laughs) whatever (laughs) we all have our problems (laughs) some bigger than others Uh, (laughs) (laughs) larry you said that editing more so than most other aspects of filmmaking is your favorite why is that well it's kind of back to my theme my little sad sack theme for the night is you know i'm just a lonely guy and uh (laughs) i like to be uh after all the hubbub of trying to seduce a lot of people into making your movie and be passionate and caring and thoughtful and creative, I just like getting the material and this is the last round. You know, you write the story and then when you're shooting, it changes and that's fine. You deal with that and that's an exciting change very often or frustrating, but you get through all that. But when you have that footage, that's your movie. And then you just take a deep breath you get into a Zen place and you put something together and that's going to be your film. So I really, um, I appreciate that solitude to the point where as I get older now, I mean, I'm so old that I'm almost irrelevant, really. I mean, never. Thank you, dear. But, you know, the point is, is that I don't take a lot of counsel or notes. I sort of have this theory that 
if I can really get at the essence that I'm after, and I have to be critical and true to myself, but that that's the movie. In other words, what I'm saying is I, I just think it's almost too late for me now to try to get into a commercial rhythm. And now if I'm, if I had the good fortune of making a bigger movie, of course I would listen to my collaborators. That's what you do. And that's part of the fun of, of a Hollywood production, you know, which I've dabbled in making bigger films. And I always appreciate the aesthetic and the concerns of a bigger budget film. But as long as I'm making these personal films, I'm going to stick to my own truths. So what I'm saying is I, I don't have a lot of screenings and note taking and what do they call, you know, when you fill out a form after a, a screening, that's a common thing now, even for an indie film. And I, I don't know. Eh, I'll wait for the critics. <laughs> They'll have something to say. Always. <laughs> you're responsible for one of my all time. You well, you're involved, heavily involved in one of my all time favorite movies, which is I sell the dead. Now there's yeah. so much talent in that movie and it's so hilarious, but I saw where uh, the original short that it's based off of, The Resurrection Apprentice, was a bit more serious and had a dramatic tone. So did you have any influence on the shift? Did you and Glenn get together and talk about that, or was that all of him? No, you know, that really was Glenn. That was, to his credit, I think the way he talks about it is he went to um, film festivals with the short, and he just, it was a little bit agonizing for him. There was silence, reverence, and, you know, polite applause. And I don't think people disliked the film, but Glenn, I think, just wanted more approbation. And, you know, so he, you know, we talked about expanding the world and doing a feature. But when I read the script, I was like, wait a minute, there's aliens and what's this going on? And it was bananas. And uh, it took a moment for me to adjust because I took, Willie Grimes very seriously. Hey, oh, Willie Grimes. And, um, you know, but it was lovely. And I, I love Glenn's sense of storytelling and their stories within stories. And I immediately fell in love with the, the project all over again. And we had a very fun journey, Glenn and I. You know, we, um, and I had made The Last Winter and he had been on that location helping with the special effects. And so he knew Ron Perlman. We went to Ron and we said, would you do this? And Ron said, the role is, is nothing. So actually we, we rewrote it to enhance Perlman's role. And there was just a lot of great, I mean, this is the, almost the epitome of Glass Eye Picks because we were all working together and we had a lovely cast of lesser known guys. And then Peter Polk said, why don't we get Dominic Monaghan? And we were all like, Peter, just because you like watching lost doesn't mean that we can get Don Monaghan in our movie. Well, Pete said, let's put a package together and send it out. And we just hit Dom at the perfect moment. And then he came on and that was incredible because, you know, my son, I had a child, or I still do, but uh, <laughs> uh, my young son, you know, was right in the thick of Lord of the Rings. And it was so fun to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to have a, is he Mary? I don't remember which guy he is, but the Mary and uh, or Pippin. Or Pippin. Yeah, exactly. One or the other. But so that was just such a festive time. And we loved Angus Scrim. And we had to, every brick in that wall was carefully, carefully curated. We had to get Angus to come and fly in. And we convinced him that if he did two movies for Glass Eye, that he, it would be worth his while. So he was in a movie called Satan Hates You and, uh, and, and this one. And then Ron Perlman, we had to wait for three months between shooting the beginning of the film and shooting his scenes in the prison. So it was 
it's almost the quintessential glass eye movie. I appreciate you bringing it up because obviously House of the Devil, but when it's Ty's movie, it's it's very much Ty, and our job is to serve Mr. West uh, in his role. But uh, with Glenn, there was everybody was pitching in, and we used every connection we had to every conceivable actor. And of course, it's a great score. And finding these old period locations was just uh, so crazy. Everything about it was kind of bananas. And we love that. Yeah, I just happened to catch that movie on. I think it was late one night, maybe on the stars or something. I can't remember what it was. But ever since I've seen that movie, I show all my friends that movie. And, you know, we even quote Willie Grimes to each other sometimes. That's Arthur's old lady come up to give you a clatter. You know, <laughs> we'll just <laughs> quote, quote back and forth to a second. Yeah, we just, I love that. Well, you know, we have a sequel. It's a beautifully written sequel. It's got, <laughs> it's got a, a monkey in it and we were we went to the andy circus's company i mean we're dom and ron are ready to go anyway well i don't know it's impossible to make movies nowadays but just so you know we're we're there for you <laughs> oh yeah that's shit that's great news we just <laughs> we, uh, we'll see if it happens you know that's the problem even the writing and preparing and conceiving of how to do it has already taken a great deal of time and effort and everybody pitching in and then um, things happen and and it hasn't quite come together yet but it's in our minds <laughs> so with the tone shift and everything with the film was there any imp- improv going on on the set was any of that or was all of that scripted moments made into the movie that were off the cuff no it's funny people have asked me if habit is improv and that's obviously naturalistic and modern so you could certainly imagine that was improv but no, I, I, what I love is when people wonder that, but it's just that the actors were in the moment enough to give you a naturalistic, spontaneous performance. I mean, I, when you ask that question, I think of the, uh, the sandwich scene, you know, and, but that's all scripted, but we're having fun, of course. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the one thing that it wasn't even particularly improv, but if we did a lot of takes of the beer uh, competition. You know, but and then that that was sort of an editing thing. But most of that movie is as scripted. And Glenn has a great style with writing and he has such a love of his characters and knows them well. And then uh, just have a, a fun time putting it to life. Yeah, that's the main thing that sticks out about that movie is great, great characters up and down. Yeah, Joel Garland. I mean, he's the bartender that and of course, the young Willie and Angus and and, and, and John Sparadakis, who's a player in a lot of the Glass Eye movies. Great fun. So, Larry, you've also written several video games. Have you, is that something you've always wanted to do? Are, are you a gamer? No, I confess. And everybody knows that I'm not. I was interviewed by this company because they got wind that I'm deeply affected by the story of the Wendigo. And they had uh, brought Wendigo into a game that was actually a little bit dead in the water. And so I think they had thought it was sort of a teenage slasher movie game. They were trying to sort out. And I think they seized upon the idea of maybe bringing in this Wendigo element. And then they heard about what they want. That's a British company, Supermassive, wonderful guys. But they, they wanted American um, dialogue writers in order to give it some authenticity. And they didn't want to have, you know, weird British idioms going on in the middle of this play to distract it. So um, I had this interview randomly and, you know, they were asking me questions that I could tell this must have something to do with the Wendigo because they were talking about Blackwood Forest and, and, you know, 
Jack Frost. Well, I always say Jack Frost, but anyway, uh, this guy who is a famous Wendigo hunter. And I was like, so guys, what are you actually talking about? Is this something to do with the Wendigo? And they were very tickled that I figured that out. But the bottom line is that they said, well, will you write a spec script? And I immediately, I, I said, sure. And I called Graham Resnick immediately. Graham and I had been writing together now and again. He had designed all the sound for Ty's movies. They were childhood friends. And I had made a film of, for him called I Can See You, which is a masterwork of trippy cinema. And so Graham is a great pal. And I knew that he had grown up in the 80s as a gamer. So I said, do you want to join me on this endeavor? Because I don't know anything about games. And, uh, and so we wrote something, we got the gig, and then we spent, I don't know, three or four years on this uh, first one, Until Dawn, which got a BAFTA, and we flew to London and had the best time and loved those guys that we worked with and really felt very, very deeply that we affected the way the game came out. We didn't, we didn't write the story. We, we developed it with them, and we mm. wrote all the dialogue over and over <laughs> because we wrote it for PlayStation 3. And then when they flipped the four, we rewrote the whole thing with less dialogue because now the motion capture was stronger. And then I got a role in it and that was fun. And I got to do uh, my Wendigo guy. And uh, so that was the, the story. And then they liked the association so much that we, we did three or four others, including Man and Medan, which was you know, pitched almost to us like a sequel, but it, it was a much lesser a lesser game and and then we did kind of a film noir crime thing we did a a cool 3d shooter and i play this mc clown who turns into a giant lava penis at one point fantastic role uh <laughs> for that so uh we just had a great time can you talk about the the wendigo a lot of i think especially now um a lot of people kind of mix up the Wendigo and the Skinwalker. So your Wendigo, is that the creature that takes you on the wind and you run so fast that your feet catch on fire? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, okay. I've done, I don't know now, four Wendigo projects. One is my uh -huh. film called Wendigo. And in that I have a, a specter out of the woods, almost an illusion of a child who sort of imagines this tree monster. And it's a deer with, or it's a man with a deer head and antlers. And for some reason, that's how I came to understand the Wendigo when I was told the story by a childhood teacher. But I've also made a movie called Skin and Bones with Doug Jones, who plays the monsters in all of Guillermo's films. And Doug Jones was fantastic in that. And that's a very human Wendigo. The Wendigo myth is associated with cannibalism primarily. And it was a cautionary tale by the Ojibwe Indian tribes in um, northern America and Canada that just spoke about you're not supposed to eat your fellow travelers if you get stuck in the snow or you'll turn into the Wendigo and you'll have a miserable life. You'll always, always be hungry no matter how much you eat. So it was a sort of a cautionary, very, very, very scary idea to become possessed by the Wendigo spirit. So my movie with Doug Jones was about cannibalism and a guy who comes back and he's been possessed. So that's another version. And then I made a movie called The Last Winter, and that has sort of the idea of the Wendigo as sort of nature run amok and, and taming humanity. So it's a really cool, I, what I love about the Wendigo myth, unlike a werewolf or the creature or Frankenstein, it's much more elusive because it's mm -hmm. not a Western 
can see. It comes from uh, the native thinking and, and they had their purpose for believing in this. And so it's just always intrigued me. And I've tried to, exp- I don't actually think I've quite done it right. And, and Guillermo del Toro actually has made a Wendigo movie as a producer called Antlers, but because of COVID, it's never come out. But I suspect that will have, that will be striking. Uh, I've read the short story it's based on. Uh, as for the Skinwalker, it is all in the same, um, it's kind of the same world of fantasy creatures, shape-shifting, Skinwalkers, yeah, all that. It's, I love it. It's, it's really spooky. And there's something not so spooky about some of our more familiar monsters like vampires and werewolves because they're so overused. Doesn't right. mean you can't do it well, but, you know, they're a little more familiar. And it's a bit easier to get a hold of a silver bullet than it is a white ash bark or whatever you need to get rid of a wing to go. <laughs> yeah, well, no, white ash bark. <laughs> <laughs> Was that one of the uh, campfire tales from when you were younger, Larry, you think? I know you have a love for radio drama and campfire tales in general. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I heard the story of Dracula from my my friend's mother around a a fireplace in the country in upstate New York, not that far from where I am now, but, you know, in those days you get in a car on a Friday afternoon and you drive well into the night with your friend's parents. And, you know, we were two kids in the back and then we'd get there and we'd have dinner and they'd all drink wine. And then the mother would sit around the fire and tell the story of Dracula. That's how I know the story, not from the book. I eventually read it, but so I, I love the idea of that oral tradition. And I got so scared that I would wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have to go and knock on my friend's mother's door and say, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Klebnikoff, I'm scared. And she <laughs> made me some warm milk or something. I was always had night terrors my whole life. My own mother will tell these stories endlessly about how I read monster comics all day long. And then at night I creep into uh, their room and and just stand there getting up the courage to say that I was scared. And then she'd put me in a little room next to them say, just fucking sleep it off, kid. (laughs) Uh, That's in uh, my movie Wendigo. There's that idea of the little kid being scared at night. That was me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's still me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Agreed. You recently starred opposite uh, Barbara Crampton and Jacob's wife, and it seems she's been on a roll here recently. She's got a movie every couple months, and you're both staples in the horror community. So what was it like? Was that your first time working with Barbara? Well, we we both sort of got a little kick to our careers when we were invited by Adam Wingard, who just made Kong versus Godzilla, and his writing partner, Simon Barrett, to be in their film called You're Next. And that brought Barbara out of retirement. And they also called me and asked me to be in a bit role in that. And I think what's sweet about those guys is that they obviously are horror fans and they kind of knew who Barbara was, as everybody did. But they went through the trouble of calling her and getting her back on the the screen. And they did the same to me. So I had a small part, but it was important. I was the first kill. I opened the film. And, you know, it's a funny story is that that movie sold really big out of Tribeca. Uh, Is that what I mean? Yeah. Well, Tribeca, I think, uh, back in the day. And um, they had so much money that the the company, which I guess was just Lionsgate, said they wanted the opening to be stronger. So they built the whole set that I had gone and filmed in the first time. They recreated it in Hollywood, flew me out 
and had me get killed again, uh, this time on set, so they could slightly improve the effect. And to this day, I don't even remember what the first kill was like, but we did, I think it was 35 takes. And I just joked with Adam. I said, this shot costs as much as the whole movie, <laughs> you know, but that's, and, and we laughed about it. And I said, and I had to keep running into the um, stuntman who was killing me. I had to turn around and try to escape and run into his hand. And I kept hitting my Adam's apple till the point where I was freaking out that I was hurting myself. So it was a very funny, slightly stressful day. And that's what's in the movie. But uh, anyway, then Barbara and I did a film called We Are Still Here, which was a ghost yes. story. We filmed up north and in the coldest period of the coldest year, it seemed. A film for Ted Gagan. And guess the producer was Travis Stevens, who went on to direct Jacob's wife. So that time Barbara and I did work together face to face. And uh, and then subsequently she was on Tales from Beyond the Pale. We did a couple of live performances together. And most sweetly, she did a studio tale. This is our series of audio drawings. And uh, she did it for, for uh, Stuart Gordon. It was so nice that Stuart joined us and did an episode of our radio play, and he hired all his old pals. So it's really very sentimental and well worth your audience finding at least that episode called The Hound. Is it based off the H.P. Lovecraft, The Hound? Yeah, absolutely. As gotcha. Stuart often. Oh, uh, of course, yeah, I should have. It's funny because the whole point of Tales from Beyond the Pale is their original stories, and we have 52 wonderful original stories by all kinds of writers, including Simon Barrett, from your next and people like Paul Solit and Graham Resnick and uh, uh, all kinds of people. But uh, the only guy who ever said he wanted to do a adaptation was Stuart Gordon. And you're not going to refuse Stuart Gordon. So we say, <laughs> of course. I saw one of your interviews recently, Larry, where you said something very interesting. I got to ask you about Steven Spielberg films. <laughs> you said that the endings can be problematic because he doesn't come to terms with the darkness. And I want to ask you what the best example of this happening is. Well, the best example is AI, because that movie, it's got a couple of rough patches. And I don't know it well, so I don't want to speak out of turn. But my memory is that at the end, you're underwater and... Well, all I'm getting at is that he put this coat on with the little teddy bear, and I don't know, it just seemed unnecessary. Uh, I also think he ruined Lincoln by, I think that movie should have ended where he puts uh, Lincoln leaves and he speaks to the black servant, and the servant says, where are you going, sir? And he says, I'm going to the theater. And then he walks out, this gorgeous shot, iconic, having just spoken to an African-American who spent all this time trying to liberate, and they have great respect for each other and then he walks away from camera and puts his hat on and he's going to the theater and a movie instead they have this sort of a shot of him lying on his bed and they sort of speed up time they don't even deal with the murder that would be another matter i'm sure spielberg would have done that great but anyway that's just an example of i wish somebody was there to say yo steven i think you already have your ending i'm trying to think of another example of course it all comes back to my bitterness that hooper lives I think Hooper should have been eaten. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he does get eaten in my version of Jaws, which I've yet to finish, but uh, I, did, I did make the boat. <laughs> anyway, even that movie's too cute. And one thing I always annoyed by is they say he comes up from, I don't know, holding his breath underwater for <laughs> seven minutes, but, and he says, Quint. 
And then Brody just goes, nah. And I always felt like maybe you guys could have been a little sadder that Quinn was eaten by the <laughs> Right? And they're yeah. and they're giggling and then they're like, oh, well, uh, what do we do? We'll make this cute little paddle board and we'll fly home with the seagulls. It's all so cheesy. And I just was like, Spielberg, you, you brought me to this euphoric place of fear and, and the texture and the grit of that film. And yet you somehow sort of had to. Anyway, we need, so that we need to have funny. a pirate wake for this salty dog. I mean, <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's well put. Uh, where's the damn pirate wake for the salty dog? <laughs> Couldn't agree more on the Jaws ending. Anyway, you know, I, uh, I admire Spielberg, but yeah, they're just little flashes of, I don't know if he's pandering or being commercially savvy or if he yeah if he can't quite face the demons that he knows so well i mean you picture uh saving private ryan that guy stabbing the dude with in the chest brutal i mean spielberg knows brutality and he also knows sort of the random violence in jurassic park when they the fat dude gets attacked by that weird little guy with the wing face or whatever it is <laughs> anyway all these different things uh who am i to tell Stevie Spielberg, what he should be doing, but <laughs> somebody's got to. <laughs> what is the best filmmaking advice you've received to date? Well, I mean, working with Guillermo, you know, we tried to make a uh, uh, we tried to make a film together, The Orphanage, and it was really very, very uh, special working with him. Uh, he would always tell me to cut all my dialogue. He was like, "Fascinating! What are you, Agatha Christie?" I don't know a specific piece of advice, but I, I've cherished being on set with some of the, the real masters of cinema. I was on a set with Scorsese and watching him work, seeing how he, he can already intuit camera movement and editing just like before your eyes. It's, it's so such a privilege and, and, and other filmmakers like uh, Jim Jarmusch, but you know, Ty West as well. We made a Western together. And so I'm not really dodging the question, but <laughs> I, I also, I think people who have heard me talk will know that I'm predictably going to say my favorite advice comes from Hitchcock, though I've never met him. But uh, I love what he says about filmmaking and, and how to make choices. He, he builds an entire set of principles on which you can sort of figure out what you need to do in a scene. But, uh, but every filmmaker is different. It's such a rich uh, medium. We're not going to keep you all night, Larry. So do you have anything else, Angelique, before we let Mr. Fessenden go? I have our one question that I like to ask everybody. So I'm the fiendish hootie here at, at Monstrous Madness and Magic. So I like to ask all of our guests. Watching a movie is a multisensory experience, as we all know. What's that one perfect movie snack? that you just have to have to complete that circle just to bring you all the way in to watching your movies. Uh, that's very sweet. I mean, it, it really is the cliche. It's popcorn. In fact, my wife and I have suddenly decided we have to watch film noir every Sunday and we're watching the most random movies, but film noir was a great, much like horror. It was this other subset that was a little bit seedy 
a little bit not quite approved of. There are obviously some classics, but you see some of the weirder ones. And what's great is that they're very expressionistic and they all often have a nihilistic ending. Anyway, the point of my story is that we always make popcorn for that uh, screening and it, it really does make occasion. And I haven't been to a movie theater for over a year, like so many others. I did have the pleasure of going to the drive-in last fall and that was a great way to have the film experience. And in that case, uh, I find that alcohol is a wonderful companion for <laughs> film viewing. Uh, but I don't know if that's appropriate answer for your younger listeners. Oh, sure. <laughs> if you're of age, you know, hey. <laughs> I, I enjoy a, a nice red with my buttered popcorn. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just pour it right on, I say. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> well, Larry, uh, we don't have anything else for you. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you this evening. Our doors are always open to, to you. Yeah, Before yeah. we let you out of here, just tell people if you have anything on the horizon. Keep my project secretive so that uh, if they don't happen, there's no shame. And also, I just like, I back to why I love editing. You know, I, I take the art very seriously. It's a personal meditation. And then I love to bring it out into the world when it's ready. So uh, I can only say I'm scheming something. I'm very, very hopeful. But, you know, finding money is, is just grueling and brutal. So there's, there's that trial to go through. Anyway, I hope to have something for everybody soon. But in the meantime, please see Jacob's wife. Fantastic vehicle for Barbara. And I get a little bit of screen time myself. So it's good fun. Awesome. You heard Excellent. it here, folks. Larry Fessenden is scheming. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, you have a great night, my friend. It was a pleasure talking to you. Real pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for your interest.